so hey, we've been in this book of, of Revelation uh, for the last couple months, and we just have two weeks to go, which is kind of sad, but today we come to one of the most debated chapters in all of the Bible, so it's going to be fun, right? And we're going to leave getting along and actually, I think, learning a whole lot. Uh, our goal this whole series is to be to help Revelation feel a little less like a haunted house that you're afraid to go into and a little more like a welcoming home because we believe every time God writes scripture, he writes it to all people, even the people who first read it, and it, he writes enough of it to make sense to us to not be scared away. And so we're going to do a lot of teaching today so that this text can hopefully be really meaningful and helpful to us as I believe God intended it. To be. And as we're going through Revelation chapter 20 today, I would encourage you, if you have a question, even during the middle of the sermon, send it to the text number on the screen. And it's been fun at the end of the service. We've been trying to answer a couple of those. And if we don't get to them today, I try to include them in a, in a later sermon. And so feel free to, to send a text out even as, as I'm preaching this morning. So I have a friend I met in the neighborhood about 15 years ago. He grew up in this neighborhood just right across the street. He and I met on the basketball court, and he, he was a fun kid, but he came with lots of baggage. Uh, the most defining moment of his childhood was when his father was physically assaulting him, and his older brother stepped in on his behalf and got between his abusive father and him. That, that's the most defining moment in his childhood. And his older brother, who saved him, ended up walking down a very destructive path, that really torments a little boy, because what path does he want to follow? The one who saved him, his hero, right? But that path that his older brother took was a really bad one. And when I got to know uh, this young man, he was just a kid, and um, we got to know each other a little bit, and at times he would get on the straight and narrow and do the right things, and then at times he would swerve way off of it. And uh, I was concerned for him, and then I would hope the best, and I would see him kind of turn around and um, eventually, he ended up going off to college and immediately associated with a whole bunch of the wrong people. And some of those wrong people uh, had some violent tendencies and were connected in a gang, and they talked this young man into carrying a weapon for them from one dorm to another. And he did, foolishly. And by the time the day was over, he had been jumped by somebody and he had pulled out that weapon and had fired it and ended up being accused of attempted manslaughter. For my friend, it didn't look good at all because there were witnesses and there were fingerprints and there really wasn't an alibi. And he sat in a courtroom in Tulsa many years ago hearing something similar to what many people have heard from a, a, a jury or a judge when it gets to that moment where they say, we the court find you so-and-so as to the charges of attempted manslaughter, and it gets quiet. And there's this moment, this pause before the judgment is rendered. The sad thing is everybody in the courtroom already knew what the judge was going to say. And if I could have one prayer for you, it's that you would never be in that situation in life. And I'm not just talking about a human judge. I'm talking about with the judge. At the end of our human days, when God says, I find you to be 
oh my goodness, do I hope you know the answer and that you know it's a good one. And so when we come to today's text, I want to bring that level of intensity to it. I mean, it is thick and it is life-changing and we need to get it right. And so would you just study with me for the next 25 minutes or so like your life depends upon it? Because I think it does. So let's pray. God, uh, would you just speak to us this morning words that will help us bring some clarity to a text that's been confused? Um, but beyond even that, that you would just speak to our hearts, uh, each person individually, and speak to us as a church family. Uh, and I pray that we would listen to you, because I really do believe that our lives depend upon it, the lives of our friends and family depend upon it. And, um, and God, I, I thank you that you gave us these words that I pray will lift us up and help us be what you desire for us to be, and that is to be ready to be in your arms, to be secure. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Revelation, we keep reading this similar story over and over again. We've already been through this several times. And when we get to chapter 20, I think you'll agree with me, it's kind of like a here we go again. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. That's the here we go again. Okay, John, who's writing this, is seeing this, this new vision. And once again, it's from a different perspective than he's He's told it before, but it's going to be a fairly similar story, except it's going to tell us a little bit more, and I want to read the rest of chapter 20, but before we do that, I want to step aside and do a little bit of teaching, and then I think when we read the rest of chapter 20, it's going to make a little bit more sense, hopefully, to you, because otherwise it feels a little more confusing, and so here's a couple things. First of all, when the Bible says the phrase, last days, it's talking about the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming. I know sometimes we always think it means some future time, but that's not how the Bible writes about it. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, and this was written 2,000 years ago, though the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So you get that? When the person was writing the book of Hebrews, they were saying, we're in the last days right now. You can read 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, 1 John 2, 18. The Bible is consistent. The last days, it's the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So we're in them right now. We're in these last days, according to the Bible. And I, I want to just talk about, we're going to come back to the last part of this next week, but I want to just talk about quickly the seven big events that happen at the end of the world. And these happen to all people, although not all seven of them happen to all people. And you'll know what I mean because we can kind of diverge here in a minute. But here, here's, here they are, the seven kind of biblical, traditional events that we see. First of all, there's life and death, right? And I'm talking physically here. We live, and unless the second coming comes first, we die physically. There's just been a couple notable exceptions in the Bible, only a couple. But for the rest of us, Something is going to happen, and we're going to take our last breath, okay? The second thing that happens, in the lives of believers at least, is this interval, this paradise. Some people call it the small h heaven. In fact, when the Bible talks about heaven, this is often what it's talking about. In Luke chapter 23, when Jesus is on the cross, remember there's a thief next to him, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Is that the final resting place forever where he would be? No. 
but it's this in-between time that he gets to be there right now in God's presence, in comfort right now, but that's not the final destination. I think that sometimes we miss that. And for further study on this, read 1 Corinthians 15. It's a great chapter, but this isn't the final resting place. The, the third thing is the second coming, and maybe we'll get to experience this before we take our last breath. Maybe our children will, our grandchildren, or maybe it's going to be more generations than we could ever fathom that we'll experience this. But the Bible says this, when the second coming happens, we'll all know it, okay? It'll be really obvious. Jesus came as a baby, he'll return as a warrior, and the world will know. There will be no mistaking it. And the other thing we know is we can't predict it. In fact, the only thing that I can predict is that if somebody predicts it, they predicted wrong. That's about it. So far, that theory is true 100% of the time, and Jesus actually says that theory will always be true. He says that nobody knows the day or the hour. So if somebody pretends like they know, I have a word for them. False teacher. What else could they be? So if somebody gets all caught up into the codes and mathematics and trying to figure out, here's, where Jesus went, here's exactly when Jesus is going to come, that person is already a false teacher. And I... And you know, maybe, you know, God forgives them for that and God knows their heart and they're just trying to do the right thing, but they're actually being really hurtful to the church and the kingdom at that point because they're doing exactly what Jesus said don't do. And that's why when we started this study, I begged you, don't try to get into deciphering this and that and codes and all of these things so much so that you lose sight of who Jesus is and what he's already said. And I think that's what happens sometimes. So when the second coming happens, we'll all know it. And the real question is, will we be prepared for that? And then the fourth thing is the dead rise. And the key point here is if somebody, you know, died of a heart attack 200 years ago, they're not left out of the process, okay? That they get to be part of the rest of this process with everybody else who's still living at that time. The fifth thing is judgment. And um, my hunch is that this feels a whole lot different for the two groups of people. The Bible talks a little bit more about how it will be for the person who's going to be judged guilty. For the innocent, maybe it feels a little bit more like a welcoming party. I'm not quite sure. It seems like God says if you follow Jesus with your life, then there's this security, this comfort that you know that you are following God. And yet at the same time, he is powerful. And I can't imagine exactly what that moment will be like but it will be good for the person who's following Jesus. But for the person who's not following Jesus, it will not be good at all. It will be more terrifying than what my friend experienced in the courtroom. And we get to number six, and this is where the paths go two different ways. One is the second death. That's what the Bible calls hell. It talks about eternal torment and um, this, we've done a whole sermon on what is hell before, and I'm not going to break into that sermon now. You can find that online if you're interested. There have been different theories about that, and the Scripture says quite a bit about it. But here's what we know, that God judges and that those who have determined to reject Jesus then are rejected from Jesus eternally. And God's judgment is not just a zapping of evil, it's a call to repentance. And so when we hear and when we read in the Bible that there is this second death, hell, eternal separation from God, 
that we should always view that as God's calling people to repentance. We read throughout the Bible when God says, warning, warning, warning. He's saying that like a parent would out of love, but also truth of come to me. Don't blow it. Don't do your own thing and end up in this terrible predicament. And God's punishment does not rule out his kindness. It actually rules in his holiness. And I've noted that recently some theologian types, and I kind of picture them in their nice house and their nice perfect family on the back deck, smoking big cigars, talking Bible, about how surely there's no such place as hell because surely God could not do that. And I think sometimes we start out thinking ourselves, thinking like, well, surely because I'm so smart that God could not do this and I'm going to impose my moral code upon the God of the universe as if I can do that. And I think they start out smarting themselves because you know who doesn't have a problem with hell? The person who suffered at the hands of others. The father whose daughter was tortured and killed in a Nazi um, prison camp not only doesn't have a, have a problem with hell, but actually thinks hell is right in this world. The people who have suffered great mistreatment in this world are thinking, of course there's a place called hell because God is just and this world is really unjust and I've been the victim of that. And so sometimes I think we try to get a little smarter than maybe we are especially when things in life are going well. But when you travel around to different places where people are mistreated, they have no issue with this concept of hell. That kind of comes out of comfort, usually. And the Bible certainly doesn't have a problem with this issue, but it's all wrapped up into God is just and good and fair and loving, and that's part of the faith walk, is to trust him that he knows your heart and each person's heart, and he knows what's been available to them, and he, he knows that he's a good judge, and I am so thankful that is not me. I don't want to be God. Uh, I don't want to have that job. But we can trust that he does. Mark Moore said, He is a fool who demands God love rebels more than his own righteousness, and he is a double fool who thinks he can enforce such a demand. The seventh, and this is kind of where the fork splits away from number six is, a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Come next week, and that's all we're talking about. It's going to be really fun. But we're kind of stuck back here today, okay? The bigger point is in, in Matthew 24, we don't know when Jesus will return, but we know that he is going to return. And so I want to teach you one more thing before we jump into the text. And it's this concept called the triumphal procession. And everybody in the first century church would have known about it because Rome ruled the world right? And there was this thing that happened after they conquered countries, and they conquered a lot of countries. When they walked in, they said, hey, either you start paying taxes to us, or we kill you, and then you pay taxes to us. What will it be? And lots of, of course, lots of countries said, well, you're not going to force us, and so Rome would conquer them, and it would be a bloodbath. And, but they typically would not kill the general. They would, they would take some of them and march them back to Rome, and they would take the enemy general and throw him into a dungeon. And they would chain him, lock him up, and he would be in the dungeon. And while he was there, they would begin planning their big celebration parade. That parade was called the triumph or the triumphal procession. And they would plan it. Sometimes it would take weeks, months, or even a year. 
But finally, when that day come and, and they were ready, they would get out the general and some of the armies or, or the soldiers that they had captured during that battle, and they would bring them out through the middle of town. They would still be chained, but some of them were actually forced to reenact parts of the battle in front of the people as they marched, even killing each other or being killed. The general would be marched, and then behind the general would be this procession of the dignitaries, the general, and then Caesar, uh, and, and then the family. In fact, when Titus was emperor, he was riding on this chariot, four horses, and he had his family there next to him, and he had his son named Domitian, uh, who would later be emperor, a terrible emperor, riding on a white horse next to him. Titus was dressed in divinity, and the emperors would proclaim to be God. And so who did that make Domitian to be? The son of God. Do you see what the New Testament was up against here? Every time Jesus is called the son of God, it is blaspheme against the Roman emperor. It's why so many of them ended up dead. Because they said, uh-uh, I, I, can, I can pay my taxes to Titus or to Nero or to Domitian, and, and I can be a good citizen, but I cannot acknowledge him as God or son of God. That's reserved for the one true God. And that got a lot of Christians killed. And so that day would come. The streets would be lined. It would be a big celebration. They would be seeing the enemy. They would be celebrating the general, mostly the emperor, acting as if he is God. They would march them towards the Colosseum. And there the general would meet his great demise where he would be slaughtered. And everyone would celebrate the victory and the humiliation of the enemy. This was seen all through culture. Actually, in Ephesus, uh, there's architecture there where there's a great big mural, a picture. I think we have a picture of it that you can even see that I found uh, that, that shows this. And there was architecture there where every time you walked to the market in Ephesus, you walked by these structures. There were over 400 triumphal processions recorded in history. 400. So that means everybody knew about it, right? It's something that just, when you mentioned it, when you related to it, you told a story about it, everybody was with you. Everybody, is everybody with me still? You got it? Because that's what I think Revelation 20 is. When we read Revelation 20, put it in the lens of the first century church. They all knew about triumphal processions. And here we have a story of the real king who's coming to take the enemy to his ultimate demise. With that said, now we can jump into Revelation 20, and let's see if this makes a little bit more sense than maybe what it did at first to you. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon. Remember we talked about last week. This is Satan. That ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. It seems like here again, John is repeating a similar event that there is this dragon who somehow is going to lose. Now, was Satan given lots of wiggle room in the Old Testament? Think with me here. Do you remember the book of Job? Satan waltzes into God's presence and says, hey, God, I want to talk to you about your guy, Job. Do you remember that story? It blows our mind. We don't get it. We're like, really? God just let Satan in? He did. It's there. It's in the Bible. But 
something changes. In Luke chapter 10, the disciples have just gone out from Jesus, and they've been doing this ministry, even casting out demons. So like spiritual warfare is happening. And they come back excited, and they tell Jesus about it. And Jesus says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You've been given power. The prophets long to see what you are seeing. Saw something falling out of heaven. What? What's happened? Does it seem like maybe Satan doesn't have the pull with God that he used to? It does to me. It seems like something cosmically shifted with Jesus' first coming, with his ministry on earth. And When we read that word even here, the word is manacles, like chains. It says the dragon is put in chains. That's the same word when Peter was put in prison. He's chained up in prison. That's the word that people would have been thinking of, someone chained. Just like an enemy general would have been chained and thrown into a dungeon. And so then we come to this question of binding What does it mean for Satan to be bound? I mean, some of us have prayed that prayer. We've heard that. What does that mean? Well, binding doesn't mean eradication. When Peter or Paul, think especially of Paul, when he was thrown into prison, and he spent a lot of time in prison, maybe even bound, thrown into prison, did his ministry cease? No. Actually, that was some of Paul's best ministry, wasn't it? Because what did he do? He started writing letters. Philippians. And, and so Paul still could talk to people. He, he talked to guards. And his ministry still went on, even though it was limited. Paul was bound. His ministry wasn't eradicated, but it was limited in some way. God used it even for the better. And so when we think about Satan being bound, picture an army evil general who gets bound and thrown into the dungeon. Now, can he still maybe do some stuff? Yeah, he probably still has connections to the outside world. He probably still has some people who are loyal to him. We might call them demons. And, and so let me ask you this. In this world, do you still see bad stuff happening? Do you see the work of the dragon? Yeah. Do you feel it in your own life? Yeah. Do you see it around you? Yeah, we still, we still know that the work of the dragon is going on. But does God promise us that that work of the dragon is restricted in your life if you're a follower of Jesus? Absolutely. Have you not even experienced that in your own life? Absolutely. Have you once struggled in an area of life where you once just lost and then you saw God's power uh, free you from something? Yeah, you've experienced that. And so 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So I believe the thousand years the Bible is talking about is, again, like the rest of Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature. It's figurative. I believe it's the last days. It's the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming. Because I can't say that right now, yeah, everything is so great We're in this thousand years of bliss right now. It is wonderful. Is anybody saying that? No, not unless they're in a bubble big time, right? But can I also say, yeah, right now, things are the worst so far that they've ever been in the history of the planet, and they're only, well, I better not say that to somebody 
from Honolulu or Nagasaki 60 years ago. And I better not say that to somebody from Cambodia in the mid-70s. I mean, we just go on and on, right? Maybe for some people it's worse, and for some people it's a little better. But don't we see that just globally, things have been bad, but not all bad. And we see this, and I believe that's the time period we find ourselves. And so what does it mean for Satan to be bound? Again, I, th- I think about being at a parade in Tulsa several years ago with my kids. And some guy thought it was a great idea to bring um, his pit bull with him to the parade because, you know, kids and stuff friendly. And so uh, I remember I had uh, my kids with me, and the, the dog was on, like, one of those big chains, which made me nervous to begin with. I was like, he needs a chain that big for that dog? <laughs> But, it, but the dog wasn't a nice dog. The dog lunged at my kids, went like that. And I remember the chain got tight, and he pulled it back. And so the dog didn't get us because of the chain. Now, does that dog still have some, is it still dangerous? Absolutely. If we were three feet closer, we're in trouble. But can that dog just do whatever it wants? Not as long as it's on the chain. And I've begun to view the dragon, Satan, that way a little bit. Is Satan still dangerous? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you feel this in your own lives. But should we be scared that Satan can do whatever he wants in your life? I don't think so. Because Jesus has come to do something totally different. Has, have you not experienced peace overcome anxiety and intimacy over loneliness, forgiveness over sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit, Do we not see the gospel explode through lands ravaged by persecution? Yeah, we do. And so we know that Jesus has won and limited the devil's work. But the devil's work isn't quite eradicated yet. So we get to verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and resigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. In verse 4, there's a key here to this text. We've gone back to heaven here. This is a view from heaven because every time in Revelation, and there's 47 of them, that the word throne is used, if it's talking about God or his people, it's always a view from heaven. There's only three times in Revelation that uh, the word throne is used to be on earth, and it's always of the dragon, Satan, and his people. So... If we're to view this correctly, this thousand years, it's a view from heaven that I don't think is meant to be taken literally down on earth. And I could be wrong, but there's only a 1 in 47 chance I am on that one, okay? If you do the word study. Uh, I I think that's where we see in Revelation it's bouncing back and forth between between earth and heaven. But anytime it's it's the throne and God, we we got a view from heaven again. So that's kind of where we have to go in Revelation. Okay. Um, Let's read on. Verse 7 is where we are. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. What? Really? Okay, think with me. 
what would they do to the emperor, to the general, to the enemy general when they were ready for the parade? Would they let him out of the prison? Yeah. So think with me there. Um, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. In numbers, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. So Satan still thinks he's going to win. He's confused about what is even happening here. He thinks he's still got a fighting chance. And when this sets up, we're like, oh, man, there's going to be a great battle. This is going to be a barn burner. This is going to be a close one. Uh-uh. Look what happens next. They march across the breadth of the earth, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Battle over. That's it? There's not like 18 chapters about the battle? Nope. Fire came down. They're gone. That's it. What does that mean? There was no battle. There was no threat. It was just Satan being paraded, making him think he had a chance to win. But no, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Wow. So Satan, you'll notice in verse 1 and 2, is bound and in prison. Here, he's let out of prison. Do the chains ever come off? Not that I read. I think the chains are still on. And my best hunch is that the first century church, when they read this, they were thinking, oh, the triumphal procession is what's happening here. That, that God's people have nothing to worry about at this last battle. All that happens is, is that Satan gets brought out, marched to his ultimate humiliation and demise. Isn't that good news? I think that's how the first people would have, the first church would have read it. And I would argue that's probably how we should read it too. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done and recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So judgment is not a threat to those who are in Christ, but those who are not aligned with Christ will be paraded to their ultimate destruction. I think that's what... Revelation 20 is telling us. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, what does God most want from us in this text? Because we're, we're going back and we're kind of studying Roman history and we're trying to figure out how would the first church have read it in that generation and that helps us to understand it. But what does God really want from us, even if we can't quite piece it all together historically? I think it's this, that God never wants you to stand before him, the judge, and to not be ready. I think it's that simple. That God says, as we've seen these two great themes of Revelation, number one, I win, and it's not even close. Jesus wins, and it's utter annihilation. And number two, that all people should be ready. And sometimes being ready looks a lot just like hanging on. And some of you are feeling like you're barely hanging on to your faith. And I want to tell you something. We need you to hang on. 
The church needs you to not give up and to not throw in the towel. And if you are really suffering in life and you're thinking like, maybe I can't follow Jesus another day, I want to tell you the church is looking towards you and we need you to hang on another day because your faith will help us have faith. And your faith will help those who don't know Jesus have faith. I mean, what's faith if we can have it when everything is easy? Faith comes when it's difficult. I want to beg you on behalf of the church, don't throw in the towel today. Hang on in the midst of suffering because one day you're going to be ready because you held on. And one day Jesus is going to win and set all things right. And we get to celebrate that next week. I want to close with a verse in Colossians. And after talking about what we did, I think it'll make these verses just really jump out at you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, Jesus has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, listen to this, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We have that same language all the way in Colossians 3, that Jesus has won by his work on the cross. And one day, we'll have the opportunity to either be welcomed into eternal life or to have to stand before a judge like my friend did when he knew what was going to be said. He knew the words were going to be guilty. And I never want you to be in that place where you know what the words will be and you know they're going to be guilty. And that means that this moment matters, that your life matters right now. Your choices matter right now. The way that you spend your time with your friends and your family at your work and your school, it matters. So this morning, you have a communication card in your bulletin or in the seat back in front of you. And if you believe that God is prompting you to get ready, then we want to give you that opportunity just by checking that in that box that you want to talk with a staff member or, or say yes to Jesus in your life. We would love to study with you and pray with you and talk with you about what it means to be baptized and to, to follow Jesus. In fact, even this morning, if someone would be so bold as to say during this next song, you're just going to walk right down here. Well, some people at the front that would be glad to pray for you and talk with you. And maybe even today is the day that you want to be baptized and follow Jesus so that you know you're ready. Then we welcome that as well. If you would, would you stand up and let me pray for us? God, we... We thank you that you love us so much. And we thank you for Revelation 20 that tells us in a whole different way the same story you keep saying through Scripture, that you love us, you care for us, you provided a way for us to know you, and that ultimately you are going to win, and what you are crying out for us to do is to be ready. So we pray that every, every person here would be. In Jesus' name, amen.